There's a way, a way, such a better way Today, today Raise your voice, tell the world There's a better way Today, there's a better way This is Rod Adams, and it's time for another Atomic Show. I have a guest named Julia Pike, who is the Director of Finance for Sizewell C, a project that should follow directly after Hinkley C and take on the learnings from that project to build two EPRs. Welcome, Julia. Very nice to be here, Rod. And perhaps you could uh, give a little bit of your background so the listeners can get to know you a yeah, I spent a lot of my career as a lawyer. I was the head of power at Herbert Smith Freehills. So I, I worked on all sorts of energy projects, um, including wind, solar, gas, tidal lagoons, and nuclear. I did a lot of the legal work for Hinkley. And at the end of all of that process, I realized the extraordinary contribution that um, nuclear can make to decarbonizing and felt very passionately that we must do more of it. And so I moved over to work for Sizewell C itself to finance it and um, get it to the starting line and beyond so that we can have another 7% of electricity in the UK coming from a exceptionally low carbon source. Now that's a terrific uh, backstory. How much of the UK's power is provided by nuclear and what are the prospects for that look like in the uh, next five or 10 years? So the, the UK has had nuclear for a long time, and it's been going along making round about 20% of our um, electricity. But a lot of the nuclear in the UK was built in the 70s and 80s. They're um, advanced gas-cooled reactors, and they're coming to the end of their lives, so that over this decade, they will all shut down. The UK has got one pressurised water reactor at Sizewell B, which will carry on, um, we hope, for um, another 25, 30 years or so. And um, then we're building Hinkley Point C, which is an EPR, so a, a type of pressurised water reactor. Um, that will provide uh, another 7%. And we want to build Sizewell C, which will provide another 7%. So would we back up to sort of 18? But the government has, over the last couple of years, become increasingly convinced that we need quite a lot of nuclear. So we are um, really optimistic about the prospects, not just for our large gigawatt reactors, but also for small modular, for advanced modular, and in due course, of course, we all very much hope for fusion. So in the UK, the prospects for nuclear are looking really good. What are some of the, the uh, differences between the way that Hinkley C was financed and the way that uh, we're you, you are working to get Sizewell C financed. So Hinkley C was financed under what's called a contract for difference, which is the uh, the income model which has been used to finance, in particular, a lot of offshore wind. And it's been very successful. And the issue with applying the contract for difference model to a nuclear power station is that because we have a very long build period, if we have an income model which doesn't pay anything until the station is on, then you build up interest through your whole build period, your whole construction period. And the second thing that the contract for difference model does is it imposes almost all of the development risk 
on the developer. What we are looking at with the regulated asset based model, which the government is legislating to create at the moment, is a model which pays some low-ish level of um, of interest and and return during the construction period. So during the construction period, UK consumers would would start off by paying pence per household per year. In this parliament, when we know we um, have a cost of living crisis and we're acutely conscious of not increasing cost to consumers any more than is absolutely necessary, it would rise to around about £2 per household per year. At the end of construction, it would be round about £1 per household per month. But then when it turns on, it will bring the costs for consumers down considerably in comparison with any other decarbonised way of making electricity. So it's a, it's a, it's a low-cost, great investment by people during the construction period for themselves and for their children and for their children's children for the whole operational period, which is at least 60 years. Contract for difference model uh, has provided the return that will encourage investors to have the appetite for the risk. And as I recall, the projected rate of return to investors is somewhere in the 9 to 10% range. Is that, is that correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Because it's a, it's a very long construction period with no, um, with no income. Yeah, very long construction period at a high interest rate. Yes, at, at an interest rate which reflects the fact that it's sitting on ETS balance sheet. That's what the interest rate does is it covers the risk of things happening because the, the developer doesn't necessarily have control over some of those things. It, and it, so yeah. it has to have some sort of means of paying for those additional costs. Now, obviously, if everything goes perfectly, the people who invested in that facility will walk off with an awful lot of return compared to an average investment with less risk. They would would after a very, very significant investment um, come away with with a return, yes. Yes, but the the, the investment into the UK um, of in Hinkley Point C is absolutely enormous. It's putting billions into the local economy. It's reskilling whole um, areas like welding, um, where the UK has a shortage of skilled workers. And so it, the, it's an absolutely enormous investment, not just in creating some electricity, but in reskilling new nuclear construction and actually benefiting construction of all sorts of other forms of green energy and indeed, you know, train lines, other other major construction, um, at the same time. Sure, and then that investment will pay even greater returns if there's an immediate follow-on. They can use all of the learn or the the majority of the learnings that came from that project. Yes, the 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 UK can benefit enormously by having a follow-on project, which we hope is Sizewell C which can take those people who've been trained on Hinkley, give them a, give them a future building uh, another power station, using the same design, using a lot of the same key members of the supply chain. We've got really high UK content. 
And we will be taking on at Sizewell 1,500 new apprentices and um, employing um, thousands of people around the country, um, both on site in building the power station and across the country in manufacturing the equipment um, for for the station. Now, this is probably outside of your scope of work, but would it be even better returns or better for the UK if another project like Sizewell C uh, was to follow on, maybe split the workforce that came from Hinkley and have them train an additional workforce? Um, I mean, I'm obviously a, a partial um, answer of that question, Rod. So I, of course, think it would be a great thing to build a third UK EPR um, because exactly as you say, you would um, you would have that benefit that we will see in size well, we would have that again. And absolutely, there would be a still greater return to the UK from the investment in all of the skills and factories and training facilities that have been created for Hinkley. Based on the numbers you provided earlier, one more uh, dual EPR plant would get you back up over 20% of your electricity coming from nuclear. Yes, absolutely. And then, of course, if we um, if we recognise that electricity demand in the UK is forecast at least to double and low carbon electricity to probably more like quadruple as we stop burning fossil fuels, then we can see that in order to maintain 20% of a growing need, there is a lot of room for a nuclear programme, not only of EPRs, but possibly of other types of gigawatt reactor and, of course, of small modular and advanced modular um, as they develop. Since you've had a lot of experience in some of the other uh, energy industries, have you run into people who complain about the idea that nuclear investments crowd out the other sources of, of energy? People do say that. I find it a strange argument, really, because we have a climate crisis and I personally am supportive of all technologies which can help us maintain a stable, affordable electricity supply while decarbonising. So I, I, I don't really understand why people see there as being a competition between different ways of making electricity. You know, we absolutely recognise the huge progress that the offshore wind industry has made. That's a great thing. We think there's a role for all sorts of different technologies. We think there's a role for carbon capture and use and storage. We see we see everybody really needing to work together to create the most affordable system um, using the assets that the UK has wherever possible. So I think that you know one of the ways we hope that people who are of that view about nuclear crowding out other other ways of making electricity. We hope that we will make those people happier with Sizewell C because we're going to put in valves to take out some of the heat before it hits the turbines so that there will be a greater degree to which the power station can reduce its electrical output and um, and use the heat directly. So we're looking at technologies like heat-assisted hydrogen or heat-powered direct air capture, as well as at obviously the provision of heat for industrial process or even for district heating. And we're also looking at at, um, the non-grid uses of electricity. 
you know, so people talk a lot about can nuclear be flexible? Can it load follow? And the answer is, of course, yes, it can be flexible and load follow. French reactors do load follow. You, you can see how the French system works. But a, a, a sort of a, a simpler way of achieving effective flexibility is to make sure that we have um, plenty of non-grid uses for the electricity, in particular putting electricity into making green hydrogen, which we would hope to do in Suffolk alongside the um, very high volume of offshore wind, which is um, which is uh, neighbouring to Sizewell Sea. I guess offshore wind uh, does have a, a method or a infrastructure to come onshore near Sizewell. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. That's right. You, 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 we, we, there's a lot of there. There's a lot of offshore wind and the Sizewell B making around about three percent of the UK's electricity. And we very much hope there'll be size well C making a further 7%. So you have a lot of low carbon electricity in that area. So it's an ideal place to um, to make green hydrogen. Are there plans to, I assume there are plans to increase the capacity of the grid in that area? One, and I ask that because one of the challenges that uh, some US nuclear power plants have run into was they are in an area where a lot of wind capacity was built, but they didn't, the, they, the, the utility didn't really upgrade the grid connection. So when the wind is blowing, there's congestion and the nuclear plant has to pay congestion fees to get its power to the grid. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good point in the UK at the moment. Um, generators are paid constraint payments um, when they're asked to turn down or to turn off by the national grid. And nuclear is not often asked to turn down or to turn off. But the um, system, as it develops to take more and more intermittent electricity, which in the UK is absolutely going to be the direction of travel, there is going to be a lot more intermittent generation on the system, then the national grid is looking hard, as you'd imagine, around how best to balance this out. but. But future-proofing the way the system works by making sure that we have the infrastructure to take the electricity into hydrogen electrolysis, for example, rather than waste the um, waste the heat of the nuclear power station, is an important part of making sure that Sizewell C is going to fit well into any future system as as it as it's developed. I'm not familiar with the uh, layout or the uh, the footprint of size well, does it have a significant amount of space that would be able to be used for something like a hydrogen production facility that could take advantage of both uh, excess electricity from the nuclear plant and excess electricity from the nearby offshore wind farms? Uh, yes. So we, we, we wouldn't contemplate building any hydrogen infrastructure immediately next to Sizewell Sea because Sizewell Sea is on on what is called the heritage coast but absolutely it's a it's a, it's a an area where there is plenty of capacity to run the electricity back a couple of miles to a, a more suitable area off the heritage coast and exactly as you say Rod take electricity both from wind farms and from nuclear and then that actually optimizes the use of the and the life cycle for the hydrogen electrolyzers so it's something which the hydrogen industry is very keen to see. 
is is the use of both wind and nuclear. Does nuclear-generated hydrogen qualify as green hydrogen in the UK's uh, definitions? So the UK is taking um, a very rational approach to a lot of these issues, so in, including the taxonomy, which we'll come on to. And, and the government has published in relation to hydrogen a very sensible set of thoughts around classifying hydrogen by, by, um, by relation to its carbon intensity rather than trying to get into a big debate about different colours of hydrogen depending on the, the um, electricity source. So the direction of travel is very positive. There are some subsidies which have been in existence for a long time um, for which nuclear doesn't currently qualify, and that's something which is being looked at at the moment to see whether or not at this point where you have nuclear and wind sort of sitting next to each other where and and you know it's optimal for everybody that that we make the most of both of the technologies they're looking at whether or not those old subsidy regimes can be made um technology neutral that'd be great i mean and i do like the uh description of the uk philosophy is rational and dependent on carbon intensity instead of a a an approved list of uh, inputs uh, with the approvals authority being somewhat uh, mysterious. Yes. Yes. Now, one of the things that I've noticed over years of observing, it seemed like there was a, a time when the offshore wind uh, production in the UK experienced almost a step change in the down direction for cost of electricity. And can you help me recall what caused that step change to happen? So the offshore wind industry has um, has both done a great job in terms of technically reducing its cost of construction, and it's also had huge investment. And of course, the enormous German investment into the wind industry has, has helped the industry internationally. So that, that has very significantly reduced the construction costs of offshore wind. And then as the financial community has got has got familiar and happy, and I mean more than happy, very, very enthusiastic about investing in offshore wind, then the cost of the money to um, build the wind farms has also come down. And so just as for nuclear, we hope to reduce the actual construction costs and the costs of finance. That's what the offshore wind industry has already achieved. But it's a, I mean, it's a very interesting point that you make about wh- what's, happen- what's happening to household bills. One of the ways we, um, we, we look at Sizewell C and we look at the cost of Sizewell C is around household bill impact, because, of course, that's what people care about. Sort of the, the component costs within the system, while, of course, everything within the system should be you know, represent the best value for money that it can – what most matters to households is, is a household bill going to go up or to go down as a result of building a particular piece of generating capacity. And that's made up of the cost of the generation. It's made up of the cost of transmission and distribution of the resulting electricity. It's made up of the costs of balancing the system, providing electricity, for example, in relation to wind when, when it's not windy, in relation to solar when it's not sunny, etc., so we are confident, and more importantly, the government is confident that 
while Sizewell C itself will be more expensive than an equivalent volume of offshore wind in terms of construction cost, it will nonetheless bring household bills down when Sizewell C is built in comparison with not building it, because it's a lot cheaper to build Sizewell C and have weather independent um, electricity than it, than, it, than it is to massively overbuild renewables and provide the storage which would be necessary to cope with um, lulls in the wind. So we're confident that there's a very positive story on cost for Sizewell C, which is that household bills come down. As I recall, that what was a time when the offshore uh, wind farm developers were responsible for the cost of moving their power into the grid, and that required you know, building a lot of individual connections. And at some point in the in the last five years or so, there was a decision made for the national grid to build infrastructure out to the wind farms and tell the wind farms they could connect there. Uh, yes, that, yes, that's right. There's been there's been there's a new there's a regime called the offshore transmission regime, and that's been an important part of the success of the offshore wind storage. Yeah, I don't know how that affected uh, customer uh, bills or not, uh, because it it does take into account part of the cost for adding something that is distant from the current grid. I mean, Sizewell is at least on land and near the grid connections. Yes, Sizewell, we're very fortunate that the grid connection was um, sized to take Sizewell C when Sizewell B was built in the um, 1990s. So for Sizewell C, the grid connection is already there, and that is a big benefit. Is it visible to customers how the balancing costs and the perhaps costs of storage and those kinds of costs associated with intermittency, is that visible to customers or have they noticed a change in their bills? I don't think it is really visible. I mean, I suspect that one of the reasons it's not visible is that the more bills have moved online, the less people look. So EDF, for example, publishes a if if you if you if EDF is your electricity supplier, publishes a very helpful breakdown of of what is your electricity bill made up, and you you can see in the bill wheel there's a section called transmission costs, and there's a section called distribution costs, and and obviously there's a section called generation costs, and so on. And so so you you can see if you look, but it's not been a narrative which has really seized media or public attention, which is what's the real impact on bills of particular decisions about the electricity mix. But I mean, I think because of the current cost of living crisis, and of course, you know, things are going to probably get more difficult for us because of the, as a nation, because of the terrible news for um, the people of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, I think that the way bills are really made up will come into increasingly sharp focus for people. Yes, I, I, I agree with that. One of the the concerns I have is I think the way you described it, once the nuclear plants come online, or once Sizewell comes online, there will be a an increase of customer bills of a couple of pounds per month for the plant, but then other parts of their bills will show a decrease. Is that no, it's it's a, it's a, because the regulated asset base model. So for all regulated assets in the UK, water, 
um, electricity distribution and transmission uh, airports, they they allow the regulated utility to charge a small amount to consumers in the construction period so you don't get rolled up interest. So that is in the construction period, there'll be a small addition to bills, but in return, when the plant turns on, there'll be a reduction in bills. Ah, good. One of the things that happened in the U.S. was the way our regulations worked. You couldn't pay for the plant until it was actually up and running and an operating asset. So every time a new nuclear plant came online during the time when we were building them, the first thing the utility did was to go to the Public Utility Commission and said, well, we've got the plant built. Now we need our rate increase. Yeah. So customers were taught that com- completing a nuclear plant equaled a rate increase. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think the way that nuclear is financed is, as you're saying, Rod, a really important way of um, increasing or decreasing public support. The other thing that many, it's hard to, to analyze and hard to predict but having more non-gas generation on the grid will have an effect, a, a positive for the consumer effect, on natural gas prices uh, because they're, they're determined by the balance of supply and demand. And if there's more, more nuclear, there's less demand for gas. Uh, yes, absolutely. And of course, you know, energy security will be high up everybody's agenda at the moment, I mean, who, who could have predicted? Well, maybe some people could, but obviously most of us didn't predict the current position with Russia and Ukraine um, even a month ago. And so I think energy yeah. security is um, a matter of increasing focus, and rightly so. And nuclear is, yeah. of course, great for energy security. <laughs> yes, it's a, it's a new concept for many people. Having been a, a career naval officer, it's not a new concept for me that uh, people use energy as a uh, means of controlling people yeah. and influencing their decisions. Uh, geopolitics is something that most people just don't pay much attention to. No. In your position as the director of finance, I'm sure we you obviously are keenly uh, tracking the regulated asset-based discussion and those kinds of things. Have you had uh, discussions with Financial sources uh, are there. Is there interest in the financial community? Has it been affected by the EU taxonomy decisions? Yes, I think that um, here in the UK, the, the the there's there's been a combination of circumstances. So there's been some very positive signalling from the government, which is essential. There's been cross party support. That's really important. So both the Conservative Party in government and the Labour Party, who are the majority opposition, have been um, openly in favour of um, the Nuclear Energy Financing Bill. And they, they've done what's called in the UK whipping for the bill, which sort of sounds sounds rather odd, but it involves obliging the members of parliament to vote in favour. <laughs> um, we have um, that term here in the US as well, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And adding... Added to that, of course, we have seen um, we have seen some periods of very low wind speeds, um, and that that's highlighted um, the 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 uh, dependence of the UK on gas when when the wind's not blowing in particular. And then, of course, we now have um, the gas price crisis exacerbated by the um, events in in on the Russia Ukraine border. And so I think that I think that 
that in combination with what can nuclear offer to in to the investment community. So nuclear under the regulated asset based model can offer very long term CPI. That's our our um, it's one of our inflation measures, and it's the inflation measure to which an awful lot of pension funds are linked. So CPI linked returns. And of course, an awful lot of the people in the financial community are uh, very, very interested in the social impact of their investments. And nuclear has fantastic social impact. You know, we we take in apprentices and we turn out people running power stations. Stuart Crooks, who's the uh, managing director of the Hinkley Point C project, he started it. He started as an as an apprentice, and now he's running one of Europe's biggest construction projects, and w- which will be one of, if not the UK's biggest contributions to um, fighting climate change. And that's not, an, that's not an uncommon story. That's a common story. So the nuclear industry takes people in and it is levelling up in action. And, uh, and then we have a huge number of British suppliers. So we have more than 2,500 British companies supplying to us. And we put a huge amount of money into the local area we're committed to put four billion into the regional economy of the southwest near Hinkley, and we are committed to put four billion into the regional economy of the east of England around Suffolk. So th- these projects can really transform lives for good. And the financial community is very interested in the power of good that its um, money can achieve. And for Sizewell C, doing the power of good is our is our aim and our vision. That, um, so we do have a lot of interest from people. We are obviously not going to start hard marketing the project until we have got all of our consents. So we are waiting to see whether or not we are given our, our planning consent and our environmental consents. We need our nuclear site license. And of course, we need this nuclear energy financing bill, which is currently passing through Parliament. We need that to become law. But when all of those things are in place later this year, then we will start marketing the project. And we do expect there to be a lot of interest. In the U.S., we have this concept called the design certification, which basically approves the physical design of the reactor and its and its supporting systems. And then there's a process called the combined uh, operating license process, which goes through the the operations of the plant for whoever the applicant is and the site. What is the the situation for you as someone who is, or as a company that is going to build another unit of a plant that's obviously gone through the regulation or the the, uh, GDA's approval process? So it's it's very positive. One of the first discussions we had about Sizewell was with the Office for Nuclear Regulation. So as you say, the the design. I'm sorry, it's ONA, not GDA. Sorry, ONR. That's it. It, well, it, well, you're right. It, it's ONR runs the GDA. If we're if we're going to get into that. Okay. So, okay. So so yes, the UK EPR for Hinkley has 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 achieved generic design approval, and and that means that the technology is approved for built in the UK. And in getting and working through actually building something with generic design approval, then the approved detailed design is built up all the way through to the detailed contractor method statements. So with Sizewell, the the Office for Nuclear Regulation has been very supportive of us building a copy. 
that this is the safest thing to do. And they um, have written us a letter confirming that they're very supportive of our replicating the Hinkley design. So that means that a huge amount of the work which was undertaken for Hinkley simply doesn't need to be redone because we're going to to do some work to make the ground conditions of Suffolk equivalent to the ground conditions of Somerset from a seismic perspective. And then we are going to build identical above ground um, power station. It will pay dividends over many, many decades to have several units of the same design. Absolutely. Both from a regulatory and, a, and just a planning and support idea. Absolutely. And you know, for the for the supply chain, the, the parts will be exactly the same. It will enable it's an efficient approach to spares. It will enable people who have trained to operate um, Hinkley Point C also to operate Sizewell C, um, which and obviously we hope that you know we would in, in due time be able to build a further reactor if that's what the government would like to happen. And so that it enables people to build their careers and give them optionality. Um, around work, uh, around progression from Hinkley to Sizewell, starting in Sizewell, progressing into Hinkley, and so on. I'd like to offer you the opportunity to share any other thoughts that you might have on this exciting prospect of another pair of EPRs going up in the UK. Well, I think I think my my sort of my final thought would be, you know, when I I look at my kids, I've got two sons at university and a teenage daughter, and you know, you hear all the news, which is so gloomy for them about climate change. And now, of course, about about conflict in Russia, Ukraine. You think, well, you know, what is it that you can do to make the world a better place? And I am sure that working to bring forward a large nuclear reactor and with all the social benefits it brings is the, the best thing that I can do to achieve a better world for them. And so that really does motivate most people in the team. It's what the team wants to do is to make the world a better place, in this case, through the medium of building a large nuclear power station. Wow, that's a terrific ending. I, I will try to join you, or actually I have joined you, in uh, de- dedicating my life to trying to make the world a better place through uh, doing whatever I can to support nuclear energy, including investing in nuclear energy. Well, that is a very good thing to hear. All right. Julia, thank you very much for your time. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. And you. You've been listening to episode number 296 of The Atomic Show. I'm your host, Rod Adams. My guest today was Julia Pike, the director of finance for Sizewell C, a nuclear development project in the UK. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on your favorite podcast app. If you want to make comments or engage in discussion about the show, please visit atomicinsights.com and look for show number 296. If you are interested in investing in advanced nuclear, please contact me, Rod, at nucleationcapital.com. There's a way, a way, such a better way today, today. Raise your voice, tell the world there's a better way today. There's a better way. Such a better way today, today. Now raise your voice, tell the world there's a better way today. There's a better way.